Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable GRE course that includes everything you need to ace your GRE exam. A full textbook, tons of GRE questions backed by our memory-enhancing algorithm, and full-length practice exams. You can try it out for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast will get you 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. Today, we've got Linda Abraham and Dr. Karen Ash with us. And Linda, I'd love if you could just start by introducing yourself and your company and telling us a bit about uh, who you both are. Hi, I'm Linda Abraham. I'm the founder of Accepted, which has been in business since 1994. We help graduate applicants get accepted to the best schools for them. Uh, We do that in a variety of ways. Number one, we have outstanding admissions consulting services, application advice, um, rejection review, interview prep, essay advice, and editing with highly experienced uh, consultants like Dr. Ash. We also provide a number of free resources on the site, including downloadable guides, a podcast, uh, what, you know, videos, and um, you know, quizzes like uh, what are your chances of getting into a top engineering or uh, graduate school program. So those are some of the things that you can find at Accepted. Great. And then uh, Dr. Asher, or Karen, as she insists that I call her, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself as well, that'd be great. Sure. Um, I was recruited by Linda to accept it about eight years ago. And uh, I started out working mostly with the MBA uh, clients. But because after I retired from my position as Director of Career Services for Cornell and for the graduate MBA program, the College of Engineering hired me to coach their engineers from all of their departments who were getting a master's in engineering. And because of that, STEM clients who were attracted to the accepted website slowly but surely began um, gravitating to my profile. And so for the last four or five years, I've mostly worked with STEM graduates, helping them get into programs in engineering and statistics and math, you know, environmental science, um, biomedical device programs. So many, many STEM programs. Great. Yeah. And I mean, um, I think that's what we want to talk about today. You talked a lot about your STEM experience. And I think that we are looking for really just tips for when you're applying to STEM graduate programs. We have quite a bit of people um, on this podcast that have talked about business school and business school is very important, right? But I am really excited to get your, uh, both of your perspective on something that doesn't get covered as much, uh, which is those STEM programs, right? So, I mean, first and foremost, when you're looking at or applying to STEM programs, the first thing you need to know is that unlike an MBA, it's probably a bit different as far as like who's evaluating your application and like what the application process actually entails. So do you mind kind of walking us through just to set the stage, right? Like what the whole process looks like? Sure. With the MBAs, um, it's usually the admission staff that is evaluating the applications. And with STEM, there's usually a graduate office which accepts all the applications and then sends them on to the professors in the various departments. 
depending on the, the applicant's background. And then it is the faculty who review those applications. And if it's a PhD program, would have an interview with the applicant. If it's a master's program, usually not an interview, just basing their evaluation on what the online profile is. Okay. And when we're looking at, um, you know, starting to think about your application, right? Like, like my goal with this episode is to kind of take us from the beginning and walk us through everything, right? Um, because you are not going through an admissions committee per se, because you're applying usually to a specific department with, you know, call it a couple dozen people and maybe even applying to work for someone specifically, like in the event of a PhD program, how does that change how you should, you know, start thinking about and approaching this application in the first place? You know, it's interesting. I just wrote to several of my former clients, um, and this is because I'm preparing a blog post, and I was asking them if they could redo their application. If they started all over, what would they do differently when they reflect back on what they did do? You know, what was the most difficult? And, you know, pretty much they were saying, if ideally you could start as a sophomore in college already thinking about grad school and line up your courses accordingly and make sure you get good grades in the courses for the field, subfield that you're applying to and think about what it is you really want to do end goal and then work backwards, that would be the ideal. Mm -hmm. Of course, most of them don't have that happen in their lives. They end up, you know, senior year deciding this is what I'm going to do. But I think the key difference between, let's say, an MBA application and a STEM applicant, MBA uh, committees really look for leadership. They look for personality traits in addition to accomplishments. And with STEM, it's much more academic and much more focused on getting the grades in the field you're applying to, as well as accomplishments in your field, whether it be in an internship, in a full-time job, or in research. And that is really what's evaluated, not so much personality. Leadership doesn't really enter into it. If you have it, it's great, and it's a plus, but it's not required. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, I mean, do you feel like that is true for kind of all STEM disciplines or that it maybe is a little different for different ones? I think or that, that the weighting is different, right? Like I would, I would imagine that research would be more important in biology than computer science. But maybe no, it, it depends on whether you're applying for a research degree, <laughs> which is usually an MS, or if you're applying to what they call an applied program, which is geared to industry. So, a, terminal, a terminal master's also. Right. A terminal MEng. Uh, in case of engineering, it's a master's of engineering. But it could be uh, an MS in a field without a thesis. And so that's the difference in focus between whether it's research or uh, other accomplishments. Right. Another difference, again, to contrast to the MBA that people might be more familiar with, 
I think uh, employability very much influences uh, MBA admissions. And it's, you know, again, it's more about academic accomplishments, academic ability in um, STEM fields. Am I correct, Karen? That's correct. And I think, you know, the, what you do need to show and where the essay becomes critical, you need to show this kind of history of interest in the field and come across with enthusiasm, with passion for the subject matter. And you can't just say it. You have to show it through your activities. And, you know, so that becomes very important. Also, the courses that you took are going to differ for each of those subfields in STEM. You know, if it's a biomedical, they're going to be looking for more chemistry. If it's uh, mechanical engineering, they'll be looking for more physics. And then different math classes are required for different STEM fields. Got it. So other than, you know, going back in time and uh, getting your classes organized in sophomore year, which is something that people should do, right? I think that, um, you know, what, what advice would you give to people that are looking at STEM master's programs right now, right? Like, are there classes that maybe they can take? And I mean, I'm sure that this is going to vary a lot by which type of program, but like, are there the classes that they should take what are the kinds of, you know, grades that if they are taking classes just in their major, right, that they should be looking out for trying to get? And then also, um, you know, how much context do these admissions officers have, right? Because I, I had friends in computer science at Carnegie Mellon where um, there was a class where the average was uh, on an exam was a 17, right? And so <laughs> it, was, it was a brutal class, right? But it's just... Uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's sort of like it's a multi-part question. It's basically like how do you how do you ensure that you're kind of getting the right grades in the right classes for your major uh, and what you want to do afterwards? And then if you're kind of in, you know, let's say late junior, or early senior year, and you're like, oh, crap, I need to start figuring this out or I need to start padding my academic resume a little bit. Like, what are some ways that people can do that? Yeah. Um that's a good question. It's a really good question because I'm sure a lot of people are in that situation. You want to aim for the right. A's. You want to aim for the A's no matter what. And Upward right. trend counts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can take online courses, and a lot of my clients have. So let's say they were in one field and they're trying to shift to a different field, and perhaps right. some prerequisites are needed that they didn't take in college then they might take them online through the university they're applying to if they have a continuing ed program or sometimes they just yeah. offer these prerequisites. Some programs have bridge programs. So for instance, Columbia Computer Science, um, you can enter, you can apply for their bridge program, which is a year-long program. And if you do well in that, you're guaranteed admission into the master's program. Other bridge programs, you're not guaranteed, but you still get that certificate saying you took all these prerequisites. Some clients have taken courses in Coursera, which are not considered um, you know, part of your transcript, but it shows you have the motivation and you do get a certificate with a grade. Um, 
that schools take seriously. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the bridge program one is really interesting because, you know, if you can do well at a school's classes in the bridge program, they know probably roughly what the quality level of that program is much more intimately and with a lot more confidence than like other yeah. programs. And just off the top of my head, some of the schools that have good bridge programs are Columbia, Carnegie Mellon, NYU, Boston University, University of Pittsburgh. Um, Berkeley does, but it's only for Berkeley undergrads. And I believe University of San Francisco also has a bridge program. The other, the other option, which is kind of related to the bridge program idea, is just to take an extra year. <laughs> you know, there's, there's this thing out there, and it's, it's not irrational, that you have to finish college in four years, and then you have to go to grad school right away. Um, no, you don't. <laughs> mm. if, if you kind of have to do some uh, GPA repair, or change majors, or get the courses that you didn't take earlier, then another option is just to take a fifth year, or start working in as close a field as you can, and then take courses at night, and then apply to graduate school one or two years out. Right. And if, let's say, you want to get into a computer science program, and you weren't an undergraduate CS major, you might want to go to a CS boot camp. And then some, some universities won't let you apply to their master's program unless you do have an undergrad degree. So you have to look, you have to do your homework and find out there are many universities that will allow you to get a master's without an undergrad as long as you've taken some courses. Right. Well, and I think that's really interesting, Linda, what you just highlighted is, you know, you can first off like you have permission to like do whatever you want you don't have to follow the set path Um, but then the second thing is like you can show both your demonstrated interest in the field and also your competency in the field through work experience and i wanted to touch on that right like i mean i think that everybody kind of knows that you can do taing right if you're like following the path you're like doing undergrad for x and you're doing grad for x you can TA, you can do extracurriculars that are for related clubs, like the robotics club. You could research, do research or help your professors with research. Um, but then also there's going and getting a real bona fide job, right? So, I mean, how do you kind of, how, how do you feel about all those different options? Like, is there sort of a priority for them as to which ones are the most important? And then... Um, is there anything that like maybe is off the beaten path that you think is a good idea that you want to highlight? Well, I, th- I think it also depends on where the weakness is. If your GPA took a, a hit in your first two years of college because you were having a really, really good time, and suddenly it dawns on you that adulthood is approaching rapidly, like a, a train coming at you come out of a tunnel, uh, and you have to do something about it, <laughs> then you really need to get those A's. And if you can get them, if you can turn it on like that and get them in your junior or senior year, you might pull it off. But if the damage was more severe or you need to develop some study habits, then it might take a little bit more than the junior and senior year. And then whether it's Coursera or a bridge program or, um, or taking classes while working, that GPA has to be your top priority. If it's a case of somebody who 
was a poli sci major like me. And then they said, hey, you know, I'm not going to make a living with this. I, I need to do something that's going to make a living. I think data science or computers, you know, computers or STEM is the way to go. Well, my grades were fine. I just had to take the other, you know, the other courses. And mm-hmm. uh, I have to show that I can, I can do the work. And that, then it could be a matter of work experience. It could be grades, it could be TAing, it could be the robotics club, it could be any of those things, as long as you maintain the grades. Um, and in terms of how much time you need, do you need to take that extra year or two after college before applying to graduate school? Well, that would apply, that would depend to a certain extent on when you discovered that adulthood is approaching <laughs> and when you try to, to, to change your majors, you know. Karen, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I have a, I can give you an example. I ought to give this guy royalties for how many times I've used him <laughs> as an example. But I had a client who went to a large public university in the Midwest and he majored in economics and his uh, GPA was in the low two area. And he wanted to get a master's in computer science and he targeted Cornell University. Um, he dis- He took the initiative to move to Ithaca, New York, and he took every continuing ed class through Cornell in computer science. He did not get, you know, those do not count towards the degree program, but he did get grades and often was in classes with students in a, uh, the, the regular program. So he got to know the faculty, he got to know the students, he earned A's in all of the courses he took. And I encouraged him to network in the admissions office and get to know the graduate admissions office in computer science, which he did. And he was accepted to both the Ithaca campus and the New York um, tech program through Cornell on Roosevelt Island. So, you know, it shows you with enough motivation and drive, you can turn even a 2.2 in a social science and, and, tur- and turn around and get a master's in computer science. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, it really does, like, that's a special case where I think the big thing that he did that was super smart was go, he went to the school and he started to get to know all the professors, right? I think, right. Yeah. But that still is a very smart idea. I um I do wonder, like, just to kind of wrap that topic up, I, I understand that basically it's it's grades, 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 and like work experience is not that important. Um That's not true. Curious. Work experience oh, can be important. You know, let's say everybody applying to Stanford computer science or engineering has great grades, then what will differentiate you? having work experience, having related internships. Um, mm-hmm. That can that robotics make, club that you mentioned. Right. It can make a big difference. So it's not that it doesn't matter. It's just that if you don't have the grades, you probably don't have a chance. You got to right. get the grades. You got to get the grades first. Got it. And then in terms of those extracurricular things or work experience things, you know, is there anything in particular that's like valuable, right? Like is working at Google better than working at a small startup that your uncle runs? And the, most Im- the most important thing would be that you actually accomplish something that you were innovative, creative, that you can show that you were innovative or creative. And that's going to be more important 
than whether it was a Google or a startup, small startup. Google was a startup. The other thing I wanted to mention in particular on a a podcast called GRE Snacks is that for those schools that that, um, require the GRE, the GRE is an important component. Right. So yeah, very we much. Have, so. We haven't mentioned it, and it's kind of funny on, on this particular podcast because it, you know, in the last year or two, many schools have waived the GRE, but more are coming back to it. Some of them really? are making it optional, but even then, um, you know, having a studying for the GRE and getting a good score can help you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's again, it's demonstrating your ability to perform academically exactly. at whatever level right. of college exactly. means. And it's a constant. Right. Yep. It's, it's funny. It's I mean, I think that a lot of, yeah, it's, it's standardized, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. I think it is going to come back. I think that like the, the big wave of people moving away from it, I think was in part because they're are a lot of nice things, particularly in the ranking system that we kind of have with U.S. News, where more people applying is good. Making it easier to apply means more people apply, means your acceptance rate goes down, means you look more exclusive, means your ranking goes up, right? Like, and that whole thing is, I think there was kind of like a race to that, and then now U.S. News rankings are adjusting, obviously. Um, and it'll then, of course, the test is actually useful, so I think it'll come back. Um, it's hel- it's helpful for people. The one thing we haven't really spent much time on is the essay, and right, that's what I want to talk about next. Actually, great, go for it. That is one way um, to stand out from the rest of the applicant group because let's mm-hmm. say everybody applying has a 3.8 or a 3.7, how are you going to show that you belong in this program more than they do? They And the only way to do that is through your essay and, and your recommendation letters, but most importantly, the essay. Being able to show what your end goal is and how everything you've done has led towards that goal and trying to build up your credentials and showing what impact you want to have on the world ultimately and where your passion comes through. I mean, through your stories is where your passion will show itself. Um, And so that is really how you stand out. And a lot of STEM candidates do need help with their essays because they're so used to doing their facts and figures and numbers and black and white. And all of a sudden there's this essay, which is very gray and having to really stand out. And uh, as Linda often says, you have to both show the school that you can fit into their culture, but also stand out. The applicant. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any kind of tips for STEM essay writers specifically? I think for all essay writing, it's, it's that your story needs to flow and it needs to come across as genuine. It's got to reflect who you are as a person, not only what you've accomplished. Got it. Yeah. And anything else, Linda, you, you, uh, you, yeah. about to say something. you know, it's typically when applying to STEM programs, you have to write a statement of purpose. So the first thing you need in order to write a statement of purpose is a purpose. <laughs> If you don't have a reason for the degree, they are miserably difficult to write. So one thing that that 
a story, passion, all that Karen said is 100% true. But fundamentally, you have to have that why. I can remember talking to a dear friend's daughter who was applying to grad school. And she was, she wrote, she was a good writer too. And she wrote the statement of purpose that was terrible. And I finally just turned to her and I said, why do you want to go to grad school? And she says, I don't know. I just think it's a good idea to do. And I said, well, it's pretty hard to write a statement of purpose if you don't know why you're doing it. Go figure mm-hmm. out why you want to pursue this particular cause, this particular path. So anyway, when you're writing a statement of purpose, you have to have in that statement of purpose what you hope to accomplish, something Karen has mentioned many times, how you came to this conclusion, and how this program, this particular program that you're applying to, is going to lead you towards that purpose. Right. So I think those are critical elements. And that means being able to cite a few professors who you would love to study with or possibly do research with. It could mean there's a research center you would love to be part of. Um, You need to really do your homework on the school, and that goes beyond reading their website. It's reaching out to current students. It's reaching out to alumni, learning about their experiences in the school, and getting a, a really good understanding of the program and the culture so that it comes across in your essay. You understand what the culture is and why you really want to be there. Yeah, I think that's such important advice, right? Like, it, if you have a statement of purpose, like, I want to clean up the great garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean or whatever it is, like, sure. Um, but you're also really also silently being quizzed on how much you actually paid attention to this school and whether this school is important to you or whether you just kind of will do it anywhere. In which how case, did the you're goal develop? Go with, how did the goal develop? Right. right? What, what is the goal? How did the goal develop? How is the school going to help you achieve that goal? Those three questions have to be answered. Right. Yeah, and I think the school one is the one that maybe people like are thinnest on sometimes, but I think that's one of the most important ones. And like you said, Karen, it requires a lot of extra work, but that work is work you should be doing anyway to figure out if you actually like the place. Yeah, and you can't... <laughs> you, you are know, going there. A lot of students that I talk to want to apply to Stanford, MIT, uh, Berkeley. Carnegie Mellon. (laughs) Right. Well, they can't take everybody. So look at other schools that also have great curriculums and great professors and, you know, spread the wealth. Think about, you know, choose some schools that maybe aren't that great reach, but are still excellent reputations, have excellent reputations. Right. And then the last bit that I wanted to ask you both about today is how do letters of recommendation kind of come into play when you're applying to STEM programs and who, who should you be getting them from? And then who, what, do you, what are the things as an admissions officer that you want to see in them? For, you know, if you're applying to a research program, then your letters need to come from professors who have supervised you in your research at that university. Um, It can be a PhD candidate who was supervising your work. It doesn't have to be a full professor. It's not the title of the person so much as that they can cite specific examples of what you did in their class or in their lab. 
and uh, how you stand out from other students, um, where does your creativity come in, and your attention to details, you know, being able to cite examples for all of that. If you want to enter industry, then you should have perhaps one professor and then two supervisors from work experience. Or internships. Or internships, right. Right. Got it. The most important ingredient is that they should know you thoroughly and not just write a general personal character essay, but rather one that really shows and cites examples of yeah. you as an individual and what you've done. Great. Linda, anything different? No, I was going to just say that it has to have examples. That's exactly, and they have to know, know them well. They, and they shouldn't be family. Don't ask your grandparent to write a letter of recommendation. Don't ask, okay. don't ask the dean <laughs> if the dean didn't supervise your work. Right. Yeah, there, there's an example from another person um, that I've had on this show where they got the actual sitting vice president of the United States to write in <laughs> a letter, but the letter was like two sentences long. And so they were like, okay. It's just like, I, this person is a great American right. at the end. I, right? I it's had, much better to have a better letter than a better person writing the letter. Yeah. One, one of our consultants was uh, served on a business school admissions committee, and I think she actually had a letter from former President Ford. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. He was already out of office at the time, but still. And I once had a lot of fun on the blog, on our blog. I think you can still find it. You know, what if, you know, uh, POTUS wrote my letter of recommendation? What if the president wrote my letter of recommendation? I just had a lot of fun with it. Um, unless the president really knows you personally and you've worked in the White House or worked on his staff, it's worthless. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a wasted opportunity. That would be the same, the same could be said if you are working and you once shook hands with the CEO in the elevator and then pigeon, you know, buttonholed him to, or her to write a letter of recommendation, but they don't really know you, that, doesn't, that mm -hmm. just doesn't do anything for you. Right, exactly. Great. And then um, as we wrap up this topic, applying to STEM graduate programs, do you have any kind of parting thoughts or anything that we haven't covered yet that you want to make sure we cover? I think we've been pretty thorough, right? Um, I do. I would like to offer your listeners a, a free download, if I may. Sure. It's actually yeah. written by Karen. It's called "How Can You Get Into a, a Graduate Engineering Program," and you can find it at accepted.com/slash/gresnacks. It's pretty easy, I think, for oh, your resident. Remember, again, it's accepted.com/slash/gresnacks, and the, it's a free download. How you, can you get into a graduate engineering program? And Karen wrote it. Nice. I'm going to go check that out too, actually. That's pretty cool. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been GRE Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable, with Linda and uh, Dr. Ash from Accepted. And uh, you can check out Achievable's great GRE course for free at achievable.me. And if you like it, be sure to use the code podcast to get 10% off.